National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns, is brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check out their website at cybersecuritysummit.org for a list of their upcoming webinar series. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, and you've joined us for this edition of National Security This Week. We get together every Wednesday at 9 a.m. to discuss national security, and we're fortunate enough to be joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, from across the nation, and sometimes from around the world to help us learn more about national security challenges and opportunities. We're going to take a look at a very interesting topic today, and and one you may not have heard much about. The topic is human augmentation. So what is it that we mean by human augmentation? Well, that, that has a number of different meanings. Some are relatively benign, like wearable technologies that enhance human performance. Other ways in which humans might be augmented are a bit more disturbing and concerning. But augmentation may also allow humans to live full and complete lives, even after terrible accidents. We're about to learn a great deal more about this topic of human augmentation with our guest. With us to explore this topic is Dr. Marina Marone, who is currently a postdoctoral researcher in the War Studies Department at King's College London in England. She completed a Bachelor of Arts in Politics and American Studies with joint honors and a Master of Arts in War and Contemporary Conflict, both at the University of Nottingham. Marina was then awarded a doctoral scholarship at the University of New South Wales with the Australian Defence Force Academy in Canberra, Australia. In February 2019, Marina successfully completed her doctoral studies in the area of military strategy with a focus on counterinsurgency campaigns in Peru, Turkey, and Sri Lanka. Marina has also taught short courses related to strategic studies, intelligence, and counterinsurgency and counterterrorism at various establishments, most notably at the NATO School in Oberammergau, Germany, and the Columbian War College in Bogota. In addition to her research, Marina is a member of the Center for Military Ethics, based at the Defense Studies Department at King's College London. She's working on topics related to the military and military medical ethics, focusing on delivering military ethical education to the Colombian armed forces that is country-specific. Marina is fluent in Spanish, German, and Russian, near-fluent in Ukrainian, and she reads Italian, Arabic, Hebrew, and Turkish. Uh, Dr. Marina Marone, welcome back to National Security This Week. Hello, and thank you for having me, John. It's a pleasure to be here again. Are are you in London right now? No, I'm in southern Spain. London is a little bit too cold, so I (laughs) prefer to keep my current location. Okay, fair enough. Well, southern Spain is a beautiful place to be any time of the year. Uh, So, Dr. Marone, let's let's go ahead and get started. We had you on the show back in June uh, to discuss the state of unmanned platforms and their impact on intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance as well as how they are performing on the battlefield in Ukraine, including in a strike role where they attack designated targets directly. Uh, Before we dive into today's topic on human augmentation, are there any interesting developments uh, in the world of unmanned platforms, and certainly the war in Ukraine, that you'd like to briefly highlight for our listeners? Oh, absolutely. I think it's uh, quite an interesting topic since the whole discussion about drones or the use of drones has evolved and has come to the center of attention, especially when it comes to defense industry production of drones. So a lot of um, private drone companies started, especially in Ukraine, started shifting production of drones in order to use them on the battlefield. And so what we have seen in Ukraine is that the private corporate sector and the military have been working together to manufacture drones for specific missions. And those include um, so-called kamikaze drones, so loitering munitions, 
Um, they also include larger drones, underwater drones, and bigger drones um, that are long range that are able to fly, let's say, from the Ukrainian border all the way to Moscow, which would be the UJ-22, then there is Burevesnik, which have strike capabilities, so they are much more serious. And we also have seen some advances on the Russian side, um, especially when it comes to the use of loitering munitions, such as the Lancet drone, which has been updated. So both sides have been looking at the impact on the battlefield and have been updating on the go and manufacturing on the go and deploying those drones for correcting artillery fire, for reconnaissance. And especially the Ukrainian side, I know the Russians use it as well, are using the so-called first-person uh, view drones. Mm. That means that the pilot has a video link to the drone, and so he can remotely see what, what the drone is essentially seeing, which is very interesting and a very kind of novel way of uh, being there but still piloting the drone remotely and we have also seen how the ukrainian side um, has used drones especially in recent um, media we have seen the attacks on the courage bridge using underwater drones then the use of drones um, in the belgorod region and allegedly some of those drones were quite interesting they were made of cardboard those were australian prototypes for all we know uh, using rubber bands to keep them tucked together so that um, these drones are basically they can um, operate in hostile electromagnetic environments and have a much smaller heat signature which makes them more stealthy but at the same time much cheaper and that's kind of the next point I wanted to mention is that the, the cost now, it, it makes us rethink of whether it makes sense to use missiles or to use expensive missiles. And I've done some some calculations, for instance, a Shahed drone or Geranium-2, the one used by the Russian side costs about twenty to twenty five thousand dollars, whereas a, a Calibre missile costs one million. And a storm shadow, three point three million. So that just to, to to put it into perspective, how this will evolve and how drones might be also replacing missiles remains to be seen. But it seems to drive the cost down. So more like quantity uh, versus quality here. What we're seeing. Yeah, there. You know, necessity is the mother of invention. In the middle of a of a war. Uh, necessity drives an awful lot of innovation very, very quickly uh, because things work or don't work on the battlefield and the things that don't work get you killed. Uh, so thank you for that update. Uh, I might return to some more questions on Ukraine if we have a few minutes at the end of the show. But let's go ahead and dive into mm -hmm. our topic for today, this human augmentation topic. Uh, Dr. Marone, I, I mentioned in my introduction you are a member of the Center for Military Ethics at King's College London. Uh, you've been doing research mm -hmm. for some time now on topics related to the military and military medical ethics, which I, which I think is a perfect setup for our discussion on human augmentation. Uh, before we start talking about the more controversial stuff, I think it'd be helpful to better understand technological augmentation for human beings, because not all augmentation is necessarily controversial. Uh, let's start this discussion by understanding some of the cutting-edge advances being made in wearable devices for medical applications. Where, where is that technology today? Well, when we're talking about civilian applications, obviously there is um, a lot more room for play, shall we say, because 
civilian devices. And we have seen Apple bringing out the uh, virtual reality goggles where you can essentially be inside your computer and you can touch screens, move things around with your fingers. So it, it is quite an advancement and it just changes the way that humans are um, interacting with digital interfaces. But then we have kind of less sophisticated devices because not everybody has $3,000 to spare <laughs> to be in that kind of virtual working room. Um, it would be something like a fitness tracker. Uh, everybody knows Fitbit, which can the simplest ones or jawbone they they used to call them that um back in the day which just counted steps it didn't even have a display but it could count your steps and it could monitor your sleeping and then it evolved into um something like an apple watch which has uh kind of all can can take your vitals like your heart rate um your blood oxygen levels and things like that and also, it has a mechanism to detect if you fall and if you don't move, then it will alert the ambulance and send your coordinates, which is quite useful for for humans who might suffer an accident somewhere in, in an isolated area. And also, the medics who arrive on scene can see all the information on your Apple Watch or whatever it is that you're wearing, like what uh, chronic illnesses you might have, what medicines you are taking. So all that information will be readily available to them, even if you're unconscious. And I think it's a great way forward. And here it seems like these sort of wearables, there is a kind of a, a spillover into the military sphere, but a lot of that comes from the civilian sphere just because it's much easier to integrate it into the civilian sphere due to um, different security protocols, or let's say um, this sphere is much less regulated for the civilian world than for the military world um, when it comes to security of data, storing data on a secure on a secured server or a cloud, how this data is shared, you know, things like GDPR, protecting your personal data and so on. How is that within the military? Those questions are a bit more tricky to answer. And this is why sometimes the military takes inspiration from the civilian world and thinks, wow, this would be actually quite good to have as well for our soldiers, because then we could track troops. And I'll talk about that later. But yes, we're facing now essentially both in terms of technology and in terms of ethics, we're faced with these dilemmas. How do we go about this? And how should we approach it from the ethical side and still benefit from these new technologies? We also have to take into consider the, the security aspects of that if we're, if we're talking about you know, military or intelligence applications or just you know government personnel in general. Uh, you, you generally want to have some sort of a security aspect built into that so you're not you know, bleeding that information out to the rest of the world. Uh, I'm, sure, I'm sure you are well aware of the fact that some of the Fitbit trackers and other things, the fitness trackers that uh, U.S. military personnel were wearing were, were dead giveaways as to their geolocation for where military troops have been stationed all around the world, especially in the counterterrorism uh, fight over the last uh, you know, 10, 15 years. Uh, we also have this thing called implanted medical devices, uh, which have actually been around quite a long time. Pacemakers, for example, are indic indicative of a, a very helpful technology that's uh, implanted inside humans to ensure a, a steady heartbeat. 
Uh, are there other uh, any other implanted medical devices you'd like to tell us about that are that are cutting edge when it comes to medical scientists science I should say uh, I know that uh, posts fitted into say a femur uh, for a leg amputation mm-hmm. that are then fitted with a high functioning prosthetic leg that's a that's a great example of a of an implanted device what else can you tell us about well there are obviously as you said there are prosthetics and now there are implants that the wireless implants even that can be implanted into your brain and there is even a machine so a robotic arm is uh, performing that sort of surgery within 45 minutes which is interesting in itself so you it's kind of double double augmentation in in a sense um, which can let you um, control robotic arms and legs so the, the, there is a data exchange um, going on, which is interesting. And, and um, based on that, there are some advances being made in order to control exoskeletons remotely. However, there is no research on how those potential implants can be removed and what the actual side effect of that would be. Um, which is a little bit scary, but uh, taking that aside, I mean, we have things like um, artificial retina, so retina implants. Um, we also have um, stimulants, um, vagus nerve stim- stimulants for people with seizures. So they're much more simplistic, but those implants actually reduce seizures mm. in in. Um, a schizophrenia patient so you have a kind of all that area um i know elon musk has been working on some of the brain implants but uh <laughs> that's quite a controversial <laughs> area so yeah. let's not go down that road okay but um there are um, i think the the biggest advancements are being made in in terms of um human brain uh, kind of brain computer interfaces or communicating with brain, uh, the communication between the brain and the computer. On the one hand, on the other hand, prosthetic limbs mm. and how you can use prosthetic limbs. Um, so you you don't have those passive prosthetic limbs, but rather they are connected to your brain, and so you can move your your prosthetic fingers as you would without any delay. Wow. That, that's that's some cutting-edge uh, science right there. Uh, for our audience, you're listening to National Security This Week here on KYMN Radio, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Dr. Marina Marone from King's College London in the United Kingdom, and we're discussing the concepts of human augmentation and the ramifications for this advancing technology for national security. We're sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit. You can learn more at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. Uh, so, Dr. Marina Morone, let's talk a little bit about the Center for Military Ethics at King's College London. What kind of research is accomplished at that institution? Can you just give us a very short, brief interview, overview, two to three minutes maybe? Well, the, the research we're doing is that we're trying to um, teach uh, modern militaries how to deal with ethical challenges on the battlefield. And you have theory and international humanitarian law on the one hand, and then you have that theory meet practice. And that's where it goes south, because combining the two is very difficult you know you have also war series you know but that that doesn't really work on the battlefield that's you know um 
the 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 best plan ends when when the enemy uh, starts in their attack on you, and so what we're trying to do is to bridge that gap and actually teach militaries on how they can operationalize those principles on the battlefield. And there are many questions which cannot be really answered. There is no right and wrong answer uh, again on on the battlefield where you cannot just grab your your international law book and look up and say, well, that's probably what I'm supposed to do, and um, that's how I'm going to proceed. Especially in 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 places like Colombia, where the rules of engagement are very different from what were used as um, members of NATO. Even then, um, uh, each member's uh, rules of engagement are different, and it creates kind of problems. But those are completely different, and so we're trying to make them understand that it, it's not quite the, the based on religion, but you know these principles are universal, and by learning the tools of how to approach a problem and how to think about it and practicing you can actually apply it in difficult situations without telling them you have to do this and not that and this makes a difference and i i know we have been working even with, with um some ukrainian and russian cards have been created for training of soldiers um, when it comes to ethically challenging scenarios and also for the Georgian military. So that has been um, the main effort. However, beyond that, we have done research on the ethics of the likes of artificial intelligence in a defense setting and also on how technologies such as human augmentation um, can affect defense from an ethical perspective and trying to kind of uh, emphasize a human-centric approach and explore all potential ethical issues there. Yeah, and that and that's really sort of we're getting into the into the core elements of our discussion today, sort of the ethical, moral dilemmas uh, and and whatnot that we're going to face with this topic of human augmentation. So. We've discussed the fact that medical science has advanced the human condition using both wearable and implanted medical devices. What other kinds of advancing technologies have you found in your research uh, that are being tested today or perhaps even used today that are either worn or implanted in the human body to, quote unquote, enhance human performance? Uh, we should note now we're, we're talking about things beyond medical health. Uh, we're talking now about wearable and implanted technologies that enhance soldier performance, specifically on the battlefield. That's our topic right now. So, Dr. Marone, what, what exists out there right now today in the technology field of wearable or implanted devices to enhance human performance for military application? So um, the first thing that I need to say before answering the question is that uh, countries do not yet have a clear definition of human augmentation when it comes to the use in the military so the us is leading is a champion when it comes to the use of, of these novel technologies or integration or potential integration of these novel technologies the other thing before i go on to answer the question is we have to think about different aspects of uh, how these um human augmentation technologies what they might look like and as you mentioned you have uh, wearable technologies you have invasive technology so invasive non-invasive so you have goggles and you have implants but then you also have things like uh pharmaceuticals mm. uh creatine for one you know whoever does sports will know that creatine monohydrate can enhance performance without 
grave side effects or other types of pharmaceuticals that can also act as performance enhancing. Um, the other thing, when we're talking about um, all these things, are they permanent or is it a temporary thing? Yeah. So if you take pharmaceuticals, in, if you take creatine or whatever, or something that will help you focus or stay alert for a longer time, that will have side effects. But essentially, um, taking it once doesn't completely change your body forever. Now, um, wearables don't do that either. However, implants is quite another question. So when, when thinking about those, the militaries are, will be much more prone to integrate specific pharmaceuticals and wearables as opposed to implants just because of all the potential side effects and you know those questions that the, the VA will have to answer when it has formerly augmented veterans uh, knocking on the door and saying now I've, I've got this implant that I cannot maintain anymore and who's going to pay for it and who has the duty of care. So with that being said, there are two examples which are not very exciting. Um, one you have already mentioned. So there is this kind of idea of digital dog tags for soldiers and the U.S. military uses it. And essentially, because in development of sensors and sensors becoming much smaller and much easier integrate, into an already heavy load into the kit that um, the soldier would have to carry. Um, they have to be fairly small. They have to be fairly durable. So those sensors can pick up the vitals. They can see basically whether um, the location of the soldier, which can be uh, a drawback uh, as, as we have seen with Afghanistan. But then again, a, a simple smartphone can give out your location. So that's, you know, um, that that's another issue that's in uh, internal OPSEC has to be regulated. But I'm sure that before these things get integrated, they, they get tested and and, and um, they they are well aware um, the 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 military of what they are doing when they are deploying these kinds of things. But even if you're wearing those digital dog tags um, in, in a training setting. It can help you learn more about your body and enhance your own performance uh, when you can study how your body um, responds to specific um, internal and external factors such as altitude, such as stress, such as lack of sleep. And so that the idea here is to help protect the soldier, as well as make it easy for the CO when, when the team is deployed somewhere to keep track of where somebody is so that um, they can then decide on a proper resource allocation. Or in case of an incident for the medical practitioners, it will be then much easier during this the golden hour if something happens, if you have a casualty, to get to, to scan that digital dog tag. And, and read the, the 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 vitals and 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 get all the information they need to get from the from an unconscious um, military officer in order to get them the best help necessary. So that's kind of one thing that is interesting and that is being used. Another thing is uh, more for the Air Force, and that's um, an F thirty five. Gen 3, a helmet-mounted display system. So essentially, if you if you know you have a head-up display in cars where you, you, you're, you're driving and, and on your windshield you have 
a sign saying you, you, you cannot go above 100 miles. So here is a speed limit, right? So it's something like that for the pilots where they get um, tactical and all sensor information in, in their helmet visually. And that helps with situational awareness as well as with precision. So the, there is quite a huge chain of, of uh, events um, connected to precision and to targeting to potential um, civilian harm if things go south or to potential escalation. So it's quite important that the pilots remain alert and that they have the best uh, possible information uh, in a timely manner, which they can act upon. And so those are kind of the kind of helmets that they're getting with all these visuals on the side. It's like 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 in the movies where you can kind of scan things and and, and you know where where the enemy aircraft is and and so on and so forth. And the the, the third one to to take one from each category would be using exoskeletons, and there are different types. But uh, just generally speaking, for overcoming physical limitations of a human body. So it's not a prosthetic. It's not supposed to bring you to the baseline of what the human body should be able to perform. Rather, it will take you beyond the biological capability of what a human body can endure. And that's an important distinction. And so those exoskeletons are used for lifting heavy weights. Um, they they have been used, I think, in the Navy, and a lot of research is going on on, on that. Or um, there are <clears throat> such devices used for vertical climbing while carrying an entire kit, which is very difficult, so physically impossible for a normal human being, unless you have that exoskeleton, which helps you to get to to climb up the wall or whatever it is, um, uh, fortification of the adversary. Um, so, so those are kind of the things that are being used right now, which, you know, from a from an ethical perspective, are not as critical as, say, a permanent implant, which would enable you to remotely control um, a robot yeah. on the battlefield or communicate with an air defense system. And, and we'll so get that's, into some of that stuff uh, coming up here shortly. Uh, we, we have to take just a, a brief uh, commercial break, uh, mm -hmm. Dr. Marina Marone. We'll be right back. National Security This Week is sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit. The Cybersecurity Summit brings together cyber experts from industry, academia, and all levels of government to explore challenges, solutions, and opportunities in the cyber arena. The three-day summit includes speakers, workshops, discussions about advancing a cyber career, and keynote addresses by top leaders from across the cyber community. Learn more at cybersecuritysummit.org. And we're back here on National Security This Week with our guest, Dr. Marina Marone. Uh, we're discussing human augmentation and the advancing technologies that are designed to enhance, quote-unquote, human performance, particularly for military applications. Uh, Dr. Marone, before the break, we covered some of the currently available technologies that are either worn or implanted that enhance soldier performance, particularly on the battlefield. Things like situational awareness enhancements, uh, mostly wearable at, at, at this point. Uh, let's venture into a discussion on technologies that are that are just on the horizon. Things that used to be science fiction that may soon become science fact, uh, particularly in the implantable technology sphere. Uh, and before I uh, before I ask the the specific question, 
Uh, I have an article here that I pulled off back in July when we had already scheduled this show. Uh, by on in New Atlas was where this was published. Computer chip with built-in human brain tissue gets military funding is the title of this. Uh, and the, the, I'll just read a brief uh, synopsis. M- uh, Monash University scientists created something called the Dish Brain. I don't know if you've heard about this. It's a semi-biological mm-hmm. computer chip with some eight hundred thousand human and mouse brain cells, lab-grown, uh, that are connected via electrodes. And uh, the, the, the chip was able to learn, because it's got brain cells uh, integrated into it, it learned how to play the game Pong in five minutes. That's pretty impressive. Uh, that's some of the interesting things that are kind of on the horizon. Uh, we're, not, we're clearly not there yet, but we might get there at some point. So today, what te- or I should say, what technologies are you hearing about already that are likely to be fielded and, and implanted inside future soldiers five or ten years from now? Well, what I'm thinking, um, and, you know, we have to go a little bit sci-fi, we have to also um, talk about um, bioengineering and the modification of the human genome and how I, I think that that is one of the areas because it is so invisible and it's so low key and it's very technical. Nobody really talks a lot about it um, except from, from kind of an ethical perspective in terms of, um, you know, modifying cells. So right now what can be done is the DNA can be put into cells in order to enhance certain functions in a human body. This has been done, and so the research for this has been done mostly for um, disease prevention. And this can be done at any stage, apparently, now. So if you're getting older and you're losing your eyesight for whatever reason, yes, then modifications <laughs> could pot- potentially be made. So, you know, a wearable would be... Um, for instance, glasses or lenses, then the next stage would be a laser surgery, which is great. But then there is another way of dealing with that, um, namely by modifying your genome in order to address that issue at the core. And so I think those technologies might uh, find application in military settings, because specifically because of their nuance you you can see an exoskeleton but i i think uh in terms of pharmaceuticals in terms of implants and in terms of um all these bioengineering practices this is where it might be going where you want humans still to be humans but them to exceed actual um biological capabilities of a human body to be alert for um, longer to be able to cope with stress, to be able to use more uh, less oxygen, but still operate at 150 percent or whatever it is. And um, the other thing is, um, as I said, using implants for um, brain-computer interfaces, so you can then potentially communicate with a computer. So there will be an exchange, a two-way street or um, in conjunction with robotics. So basically um, piloting remote robots, such as 
even drones that we have um, addressed before or you know you 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 have probably seen the the first um crewless fighter jet introduced by the australians and piloting that could be somebody uh, from the ground not using a computer system but just using an implant and some person uh, some first person view goggles possibly so that's kind of the direction i think this might be going yeah, one of the, one of the uh, when I was doing some research uh, to prepare for this show, one of the concepts that I saw was something called Cyborg Soldier 2050. Our our listeners may want to Google that term, Cyborg Soldier 2050, to see some of the conceptually what we're what we're talking about here. Yeah, it, it is it is a fascinating you know brave new world out there with this specific technology. Uh, Marina, let me ask you the million dollar question. Uh, quite literally. Which countries are the most advanced in this field of implanted human augmentation uh, in the research area? And how much money is being spent on this research, development, testing, and evaluation, or RDTE, as they say, uh, in this field today? Is the money being spent a significant sum, or are governments hesitant to go down this road because of the moral and ethical uh, challenges? Plus, you're sort of unleashing a, a, a Pandora's box uh, in the way technology may take the human condition by doing some of these things? Well, it's quite an interesting question. Um, I, I, I'm afraid I'm not going to get the million dollars because I don't know the exact numbers that is uh, being invested into this field because we're talking about different companies and mo many of them not actually disclosing their projects it's not like dapra where you know you can go on their website or elon musk um so a lot of the research also uh, takes place at universities as a, uh, the monash universities and the, the, or there are a few universities in the netherlands which are working on different kinds of um human documentation programs i would say that uh right now um in terms of leading the, the the research the us would be the pioneer in this with a caveat that um this is just based on limited information that we have about who is researching this um specifically we don't know what the russians are doing we don't know what the chinese are doing and i'm sure that they they are doing those same things and putin has already hinted it as that um, in a television program a couple of years ago saying, oh, this um, genetic engineering, fascinating. We have to use that and we have to use other things and artificial intelligence and all, all, all those uh, fancy new terms. And so we don't know how much research other countries are putting into this topic and how they will be integrating their research, especially into the military sphere, which um, makes it kind of tricky. Another thing is that we also have to differentiate between R&D um, done for military purposes, even in the United States, or R&D done for civilian purposes, or perhaps you want to research something in order to be able to defend against it. Mm, so you will not be integrating it per se. Um, for instance, development of different uh, nerve agents by a variety of countries in order to be able to find an antidote, not to be using it as a biological weapon. So the research is ongoing, but it's still um, still kind of below the radar. 
it's being marketed more to civilians when it comes to VR goggles, when it comes to all those wearables and uh, for medical uses, such as those implants for seizures, for um, blood glucose monitoring, for for diabetics or as foot temperature monitoring for kind of preventative purposes. But the field is very, very large and very varied. So I, I'm sorry, I cannot put a number on, you know, how much is happening and how much of that will be going to the military sphere is not known because that is something that is highly classified. And I'm sure we will never know what the military <laughs> is actually using. Uh, that That is probably a very good guess. Uh, so let me ask you this. Uh, we, we touched on these things just a little bit. Um, for these kinds of augmentations to soldiers, I mean, typically most soldiers are joining the militaries of any country, you name it, 18, 19, maybe 20 years old. They're very, they're very young. Now, the people who are developing these kinds of technologies, the, the engineers, the scientists that are involved, they're mostly working on the technical side. But you're going to have to have medical professionals to marry up with those technical experts if you're going to start talking about implantation into the human body. Uh, also, if it's a wearable technology that has some sort of an impact on the human nervous system, for instance. Uh, now we're talking about 18, 19, 20-year-old kids uh, who are either being impacted for their nervous system or something physically in their body with some sort of an implant. Talk a little bit about this challenge of uh, the medical ethics side of these things with things like informed consent for a 20-year-old kid, uh, long-term health effects, recovery protocols if you've had you know, tremendous stimulation of your nerve, central nervous system through some sort of an augmentation device uh, so that you can survive in combat. You come out of combat, it's already a, an intense uh, adrenaline rush constantly. I mean, that's what every combat veteran will tell you. Uh, but now you're talking about somebody that's been enhanced even more beyond that. What, what are some of the ethical and even moral issues here that we should be thinking about with regards to this augmentation stuff? I'm going to throw quite a few at you. Um, the first one, so let's start from the R&D end. So in order to be able to integrate that technology into the military, first you have to oversee the R&D process in order to ensure that it um, fits the requirements, uh, both kind of medical and security requirements of what you're looking for. So I think the ethical problems are already starting there uh, you know do you want it to be top-notch but with huge side effects or do you want it to be somewhat mediocre but it's safe to use and then you can augment uh, an entire battalion without any uh, headache or without um, having any second thoughts that you know this might get back at you uh, one day and so i think the, the the first kind of ethical problem comes at the development stage and um, then let, let, let's assume, so you, you've developed it, you got it into the military, you, you have, obviously, you have clinicians, and you have military personnel, and then you have this device. So essentially, somebody will have to tell to, to give the option, how do you how do you even select people who, who can be augmented? So that that's another thing. Is there a selection board? Are they selected on on based on different uh, physical attributes you know so there you have an ethical problem in terms of kind of discrimination or is it equity is it the best guy for the job and then you, you get that guy you want to augment and you that, that then you have to explain to him well these are the side effects and by the time you're 40 you might 
go blind because your optical nerve is getting overstimulated, but you can see sharper for 20 years, no problems, no other side effects. And when they are 18, do they care at that stage what happens when they're 40? And will they take the risk? So you need to make sure that they understand what they are signing and giving them the chance of maybe going out of this contract um, at a certain point. And again, we're talking about technologies, the side effects of which we cannot predict uh, five, six, 10 and 20 years from now on. So that means that the informed consent that you're going to give them has to be revised based on feedback. So there has to be an entire feedback loop. And the other thing is, how do you integrate this soldier in a, say, um, combined operation? Do you tell your um, other troops from other nations, say NATO members? Uh, by the way, that guy is augmented. He can see very, very well. You know, just bear that in mind. I mean, how do you how do you go about um, transparency of how these things are shared so that people are aware so that it can um, increase the operational outputs because you know that guy has that capability so let him be a sniper or whatever right or let him watch if if there are any incoming drones from from the adversary because he can see them far away even before the radars can spot them or you know just hypothetically speaking so how do you go about that and and the other ethical issue is what if this person leaves the military and wants to go into the civilian world? Do they keep the implant? Does it get removed? And if it gets removed, what are the consequences? So essentially, they have been living at this baseline for, say, 25 years, and then you deprive them of that 200% better vision. Yeah. And kick basically let them out on a civil street uh, what psychological impact it might have and who has the duty of care then or can they keep it and so those are kind of some of the problems some of the ethical problems not not kind of very straightforward but there are a lot of moving bits and pieces where one has to ask themselves you know how do we deal with this those are all tremendous points tremendous and I, and I, we didn't even talk about psychological screening to see if somebody can actually handle uh, these fundamental changes to how their body would operate, uh, etc. Uh, for our audience, you're listening to National Security This Week on KYMN Radio, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Dr. Marina Marone from King's College London in the United Kingdom, and we're discussing the concept of human augmentation and the ramifications for this advancing technology for national security. We're sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit, and you can learn more at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. Uh, so, Dr. Marina Moron, uh, let's tackle some of the broader implications for military forces in the future if human augmentation becomes commonplace. And actually, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and predict it right now. Human augmentation, whether it's exoskeletons to give humans significantly greater strength on the battlefield or implanted technologies that dramatically enhance situational awareness on the battlefield or even technologies that improve heart and lung function or improve resilience to combat trauma, all of these concepts and many more are, are likely to find their way into or onto the human body in the next quarter century and, and perhaps sooner. How, how do you view this advancing field? Uh, what areas of this research really give you pause uh, and which areas give you great hope as you study this topic? 
Well, um, I, I think, I, I mean, I like sci-fi a lot. So for me, this is very fascinating. And I was hoping we will get some of these HA devices to look at them so that we can, you know, study them. Unfortunately, that didn't happen, maybe for, for the best. But um, I, I think within the military, um, the idea will be, so now we're, we're kind of, again, moving into that direction where we want to dehumanize warfare again. Uh, with all of the drones and things like that. But I think uh, the humans will still be the tip of the spear, so you can not completely dehumanize them. But what you can do is um, improve specific procedures and improve humans in such a way as to make them more resilient as the contemporary battlefield changes. And so they have to cope with much more because the tempo on the operational, uh, on the tactical level is so fast that a human brain cannot cope with that that much. And I think, uh, or or at, at this pace at least. And I think that's um, something where I, I might be looking into augmenting commanders' capabilities, such as for command and control functions where you would get um, a synthesis of data from different sensors, from you know satellite Im imagery and so on, and you would have a uh, a brain uh, computer interface where a commander would be then able to take um, so increase the decision making and probably reduce the likelihood of human suffering or of collateral damage. So still adhering to the international humanitarian law, so potentially minimizing abuses. So I think in, in that area, that will be specifically important because you might not have as many soldiers, um, infantry soldiers, perhaps um, more kind of special operations forces uh, who will be augmented in order to cope with certain environments uh, such as hot climate, very cold climate. Now we have kind of the Arctic region. The Russians have been training in the Arctic for quite a while now as a military in order to be able to operate in that environment. And this is disconcerting because NATO forces have not uh, gotten that same amount of training and that will be a challenge, but you still want to um, maintain a competitive edge vis-a-vis um, -vis your uh, adversary. So I think especially when it comes to command and control and special operation forces, that's where we might be seeing a lot of the human augmentation happening again with, with exoskeletons. But mostly I do predict that uh, these um, technologies will not be visible. Even things like night vision might um, be replaced by lenses. So everything will be compressed in a sense so that you cannot see from afar that you're facing a soldier who has had human augmentation yeah. and also for monitoring the vitals for protection for some sort of um, support, psychological support where, where your uh, dog tag tells you it's time to stop. Whatever you do beyond this uh, is not is going to be subpar just you know stop take a rest because you're endangering yourself you're endangering your team so things like that to optimize your performance even not um in in terms of administering you specific drugs but just telling you this is time to stop you've exceeded your um, capabilities and so on take a pause 
that that will also that might be less controversial than most of these technologies that I've just named that will be used because we know that um, performance optimization is a big topic in the military when it comes to nutrition, training, uh, sleep, and mental health. So I, I think in in those areas there will be also some sort of augmentation or personal assistant, something like Siri or Alexa, whatever, to help soldiers keep on track or cope with psychological stress or uh, cope um, with physical stress or get medical help on time. So I'm glad you brought up uh, the fact that most of this augmentation is probably going to start in the special operations forces world uh, all around from nations all across the planet. When I when I was assigned at U.S. Special Operations Command uh, from 1994 to 1998, one of the commanders that I served under at, at U.S. SOCOM uh, was General Peter Schumacher. Uh, now he was one of these really forward-thinking individuals. Uh, I mean, he was a he was a tremendous innovator. He created a, a reading list of books he wanted that the U.S. Special Operations Community, as in the Navy SEALs, Army Green Berets, Army Rangers, Air Force Combat Controllers, many others. He wanted us to read those things, read these books. And one of those books was Robert Heinlein's Starship Troopers, which was a science fiction novel. And so Schumacher's statement, he envisioned a U.S. Special Operations Forces that were so advanced in technology that each individual soldier or SEAL or Air Force combat controller might one day be able to have complete situational awareness and be able to control through individual firepower an area of approximately one kilometer around that individual trooper. That was really cutting-edge visionary thinking in the mid-1990s. Amazingly enough, you know, his vision, once completely science fiction in nature, may actually be moving toward fruition. What are your thoughts on the implications for these advancing technologies for broader foreign policy issues, the application of the tools of national power, especially hard power when we have these augmented super soldiers, I'll call them, quote unquote. Will the first nation to perfect field and employ these military technologies as a part of their military have an overwhelming advantage over uh, adversaries? Or will every advanced nation that can afford to do so, will they adopt these technologies as fast as they can possibly field them? It is quite an interesting question because um, it's also it, it's a, a political matter, obviously. And as I said, as of now, there is no unified response to how do we go about this? Do we integrate it or do we not? And uh, some countries do not see perhaps the necessity. Uh, but then again, um, the view of the security landscape from their perspective might be very different from those countries that think this is absolutely imminent and we have to do it before our adversary does. Because at the end of the day, you don't want to deploy your troops somewhere where you will have uh, cyborg soldiers uh, from North Korea, for all I care, facing you and you have absolutely no chance and you'll get obliterated because their capabilities exceed those of a human being. And that's a scary thing as for a soldier being deployed somewhere to face. Uh, I, I mean, aside from the fact that, that, that it's life-threatening, it's, you know, even psychologically dealing with that and understanding that that, that is not quite human anymore, I, I, I think is pretty scary. And so maybe uh, there will be an attempt to somehow moderate it within defense alliances such as NATO in terms of 
what sort of augmentations do we need, how much of that, and which countries uh, should be using that. Again, you know, does it make sense to um, augment half of your infantry and then mix it and deploy? Probably not. You know, so you have different stages of augmentation, which I think will be implemented de depending on the demand and depending on the tasks to be solved on the battlefield by, by those spe specific forces. And I think the, the first step to that will be creating some regulations or even uh, even earlier than that, come up with a unified definition that everybody agrees on, not just like uh, we're, we're at the, the same dilemma as terrorism, where we don't have, a, you know, in the United States is defined differently. Than, and we're still fighting terrorism, but everybody understands it differently. And I think this is a much more serious area where there has to be some sort of um, agreement on what we're talking about here. And especially for combined operations, we have to be sure that we're more or less on the same page when it comes to the use of these technologies and when it comes to information sharing with allies and how you integrate different augmented teams. You know, France might have different technology. America has different technologies. So how do you combine them? How do you make them um, interoperable? Yeah, that's a great point. So uh, we don't we don't really have when I don't I mean, I look out there in the world today, I don't see any nations kind of clamoring for some sort of an, an international treaty uh, to control the development of uh, directed energy weapons or hypersonics. Uh, we've even backed away from a lot of the nuclear uh, control trees. There are no treaties uh, covering uh, the use of cyber uh, in, in a conflict space, let alone artificial intelligence. So why should we even think about having treaties in this space uh, covering human augmentation where we're going to fundamentally change the human condition uh, through this augmentation. Uh, so, Dr. Marina Marone, we're down to just uh, three minutes left in our show today. Uh, as you know, I always try to give my guests the final final word before we close out the show. What final thoughts would you like to leave with our listeners today regarding this topic of human augmentation? Well, I, I think that um, there is much more understanding needed on, on the part of the civilians and in terms of what um, militaries have to face in the combat. And the fact that there has to be some sort of adaptability. And, and I think um, there are a lot of um, R&D companies in different um, aspects of technology which don't want to work with militaries for whatever reason, uh, ethical reasons. Um, you, you name it, you know, for instance, uh, companies providing virtual reality um, interfaces for, for soldiers to do wargaming or to, to, to train to operate um, an aircraft and things like that, which are fairly harmless compared to what we have discussed. And I, and I think that, you know, going forward, I would try to encourage greater cooperation between the uh, private corporate sector and the military sector in order to remain uh, on the cutting edge of the technology and being able, once you explore that, to forestall potential issues. Because when you take that step, that's when you start finding out all the different moving parts. And that's when you start thinking about solutions. Because, you know, we can hypothesize a lot, but, you know, until you get there, you, you will never know. And I think it's much more important to do that for us, knowing that our adversaries are probably one step ahead and not disclosing it. So I would have the fear of being kind of left behind 
when, when it comes um, to integration of such military technologies, I'd rather have the adversaries catch up rather than, you know, facing a situation you don't want to face, as I said, cyborgs on the battlefield, and you have absolutely no chance. Yeah, I, 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 there was a, a, a colonel, army colonel, that told me this uh, this saying once long, long ago when I was just a junior officer. He said, on the battlefield, coming in second place is a terminal condition. Uh, so we don't ever yep. want to be in second place on, on, on the battlefield. Uh, so we'll have to bring our show to a close for this week. Dr. Marina Marone, currently a postdoctoral researcher at the War Studies Department at King's College London in the United Kingdom. Thank you so much for joining us again today here on National Security This Week. Thank you, John. It's been a pleasure. Before I let you go, uh, any good articles uh, that you can think of that uh, you might recommend to people to look up, uh, to read on their own about this topic of human augmentation? Any books, maybe? Yeah, I, w- I was just looking at a book. So I have a book which is called The Age of AI, which might be interesting um, uh, co-authored, ironically, by Henrik Kissinger himself, Eric oh. Schmidt, and um daniel hutton locker and there was another book um just give me a second i'm trying to locate it um it was uh specifically um about the uh the problems uh what, what when it comes to thinking about new technologies um i'm afraid i'll have to come back to you on that because i cannot uh see to locate it, but I will suggest a different one, which might also be good, and it's called For Battlegrounds. Okay. Which is talking also about the future of um, of the battlefield and how it will evolve, and uh, also about a lot of cyber issues which we couldn't cover in this podcast due to um, time restrictions, but hopefully some other time. Okay. Well, thank you, Dr. Marina Marone, for spending time with us again today. Thank you so much. And, folks, that closes this edition of National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today here on KYMN Radio. I look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. By the way, there's still time to register to attend this year's Cybersecurity Summit at the Doubletree by Hilton Hotel in Bloomington from October 24th through to the 26th. If you're interested in the world of cyber, this summit is for you, especially if you're responsible for security aspects in your company or are a company C-suite leader. Thank you for listening to National Security This Week. Have a great finish to week, everyone. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns with host John Olson. It's brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check their website, cybersecuritysummit.org, for a listing of their upcoming webinar series.